0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this... But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
1: I hope in the next four weeks to help you prepare to suffer for Christ. And the reason I make this my aim for the next four weeks is because I believe that the Bible says we should prepare to suffer for Christ and for righteousness' sake, and because I believe that the contemporary situation in which we find ourselves says that we should prepare to suffer for Christ and for His righteousness. David Barrett is a well-known mission scholar who edited the World Christian Encyclopedia for Oxford University Press and every year puts out a new updated statistical statement about the state of the Christian movement in the world, and he estimated that in 1980 there were 270,000 Christian martyrs and that this year there will be 308,000 Christian martyrs. And in the year 2000, probably 500,000 Christian martyrs. That is, people who will die more or less directly because they are a Christian. In Somalia, this aspect doesn't make the news, even though I'm glad what does make the news makes the news there are tens of thousands of Christians in southern Somalia that are being systematically starved to death by rival factions precisely because they're Christians, cut off from the availability to food. In America, our own secular society is especially hostile, increasingly hostile among the intellectual elites and the media leaders to evangelical Christianity and to the moral vision of life and justice that we stand for. The First Amendment has been so twisted in the service of secular antagonists that it would not be unthinkable at all today if some judge were to argue that public provision of water and electricity and sewer to the buildings of Christian churches was, in fact an unconstitutional establishment of religion by government resources and regulations i think about that and it seems as obvious and natural as the day in law that that would happen after what i've seen happening today if any of you are shaking your head and say oh that's ridiculous that can never happen you just don't have your head above water and are watching what is happening in the increasingly hostile atmosphere toward christianity and righteousness that the Bible teaches. Peaceful pro-life protesters in Buffalo without marching on anybody's property except Uncle Sam's or blocking any doors, kneeling to pray, can be beaten publicly with police watching and get no protection but in fact be indicted as the criminal. Public entertainers are blaspheming the name of Jesus more openly, with more horrid, ugly, four-letter language than ever imagined. And today, things are said which in former decades would have been regarded as reprehensible by the American public are today either passed over or proved. All over the world, the price is rising ...for being a Christian. The cost of being a Christian is going up. And it always has been high. It's going to cost us lives at Bethlehem to send 2,000 by 2,000. I do not doubt that missionary children will die before the decade is over... ...because of where they are, and that people themselves will lose their lives... Tertullian said 1,800 years ago, we Christians multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Jerome said 200 years later, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. We talk so much today about closed countries that I think we've almost totally lost the biblical vision of what missions is. There are no closed countries. There are no closed countries. Provided you have the mindset that it is probable and to be expected that those who carry the gospel will be imprisoned or killed. And that is to be expected. That is normal. That is not abnormal. To define the Christian mission so as to avoid that is to close your Bible. For example, Jesus says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's normal missions. So so all the talk today about closed countries, oh me, what will we do to get the gospel to where it needs to go, is an ending of biblical theology. We really need to recover God's perspective. That's the point of these four weeks. God's perspective on suffering... There's a little village in Nigeria named Miango. It has an SIM guest house and a little church named Kirk Chapel. And behind the chapel, which is quite old, there are 56 graves about this long. Some of them read Ethel Armold, September 1, 1928, to September 2, 1928. Barbara J. Swanson, 1946 to 1952. Eileen Louise Whitmoyer, May 26, 1952. July 3, 1955. This is the cost of taking the gospel to Nigeria in the past 50 years. 56 of them in one place. Charles White... Told the story of, of visiting that little graveyard, and he ended his story with this amazing sentence. Hope you remember it. Moved me very deeply. He said, The only way we can understand the graveyard at Miungo is to remember that God buried his son on the mission field. Isn't that great? God buried his son on the mission field. And when he raised him from the dead, he called us to follow him into all the world at whatever cost. It is not abnormal to lose your life. It is not to be run from always. Two years ago, Brother Andrew told the story of meeting with 12 pastors in Budapest, Hungary. And as he was teaching them, the door opened and a pastor that they had not seen for a long time, a revered pastor from Romania, walked in who had been in prison a long time. And he stopped teaching and he knew this was the time to listen and not teach. When people like that come, you know you listen, you don't talk. They have depths to tell you about. And there was a long silence, and then this pastor from Romania said, Andrew, are there any pastors in prison in Holland? That's where Brother Andrew lives, in Holland. No, he replied. Why not, the pastor asked. After a moment, he answered, I think it must be because we do not take advantage of all the opportunities God gives us. Then came the most difficult question. Andrew, what do you do with Second Timothy 3.12? Brother Andrew opened his Bible and read to the other pastors, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he closed the Bible slowly, he said, and responded like this, Brother, please forgive me. We do nothing with that verse. I think that by and large in America, Holland, we have so domesticated the concept of godliness into inoffensive middle-class morality and law-keeping that 2 Timothy 3.12 has become virtually unintelligible to us. I think many of us are simply not prepared to suffer. Our whole mindset is avoid, avoid, avoid. If it brings any hardship, if it brings any danger, if living there is a problem, you don't live there. Right? You go where it's safe. You go to countries that are safe. And you don't take your children, of course, if there's any difficulty. My, oh my, what a world of difference from the Bible and from the way the church spread in the first centuries. We are far from it, and that's why I'm preaching these four messages. I really want us to be different. We've got to be different. This country will not be reached if we're not different, and the Great Commission will not be accomplished without radical, risk-taking, life-laying-down believers. And I'd be happy to lose half the people at Bethlehem in order to have the half that are right. I don't care about spectators. Each message will have a focus on one of the purposes of God in suffering. Now, I say purposes of God in suffering. Paul Lindbergh, missionary to Sweden and now West Germany, Germany, um, told me of a colleague of his who argued vehemently God never purposes the suffering of his children. I just flopped my Bible open and showed him a half a dozen texts to the effect that that's not true for example first peter 4:19 one of my favorites let those who suffer according to god's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator according to god's will we are appointed for suffering we are appointed To live the way Jesus lived and many to suffer the way he suffered. To complete his afflictions, Paul said. Now the four purposes of suffering that these four messages will be focused on are a moral purpose. Suffering is designed to refine our faith and our holiness and our hope. And an intimacy purpose suffering takes us deeper with Jesus makes him love makes us love him more and know him better and care about other things less and him more a mission's purpose because God calls us to complete Christ's afflictions by extending the worth of them through the reality of ours and there is a glory purpose This slight momentary affliction is working for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Those are the four weeks. Today, the moral or spiritual purpose of suffering with and for Christ. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul has shown that we're to be justified by faith, not works of the law. We have access and introduction into grace through Jesus Christ. We stand in this grace. I love that phrase. We stand in grace. So all around us, under us, supporting us, over us, shielding us, around us, clothing us. We stand in grace. And then, at the end of verse 2, we hope, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. You agree, don't you now, that the rock bottom and heart and essence of our joy as Christians is the hope of the glory of God. I have the fear that we have made something else the heart of our joy. Namely, something now. Christians have at the heart of their joy hope. A joy beyond this life called the glory of God. And the American church has sold it for a bowl of oatmeal. Now. I will have heaven now, thank you. I will have it in where I live. I will have it in what I drive. I will have it in what I wear. I will have it in all the toys around my house. I will have it in my job. I will have it in my vacations. I will have my joy now. I will not live on hope. Therefore, I will not be radical. Therefore, I will not risk losing my life, or my children, or my health, or my job, or my reputation. I live for joy now. And that joy is not rooted in the hope of the glory of God. That's that's what's got to change. This text says that we glory, or exult, or rejoice... In hope of the glory of God. Now, if that's true, then what follows in verses 3 and 4 is perfectly consistent. Namely, we will also exult in what produces hope. That's the logic here. That's the flow of thought. The line of reasoning is you start in verse 2 with hope. Hope for the glory of God. And then you come to the end of verse 4 and you end up in hope. And in the middle, you're carried by afflictions through perseverance and a proven character. Back to hope again. begins with hope in verse 2. It ends with hope in verse 4. And the reason we rejoice or exult in these tribulations here in the middle is not because we like pain. We are not masochists. We're not sick in the head. The only reason this... Crazy, radical, unbelievable statement that we exult in being hurt is because it breeds hope. So if hope is not your life, this text won't make sense. It just won't work. It won't work for you. It'll produce no emotional effect on you this morning. Because the whole logic... Begins in verse 2 with hope in the glory of God, ends with hope in the glory of God. If that's not your source of joy, then everything in the middle will be meaningless. So my prayer for you, even as I'm preaching right now, is God, take out other hopes that are squeezing away hope in the glory of God. And replace those hopes with the glory of yourself. That's what I hope He's doing as I preach. The main lesson then, we can sum up the main lesson and then look at a couple particulars. The main lesson of this text is that God has a purpose for your suffering on his behalf. And that purpose may be very different from ministry goals. Like we might have the ministry goal of evangelizing single people who don't go to church in Minneapolis or suburban professionals, or Turkish Muslims, and God's purpose in and under that goal is that we go to jail. And it is so strange when you read the New Testament, how many times if you were running the mission as a sovereign God, you would just not allow it to be interrupted so many times the way it was for Paul. Why in the world did God in his sovereignty let him go to jail so many times, get beaten five five times with lashes, three times with rods, a night and a day in the sea, three shipwrecks, danger on the streets, enemies on all sides. I mean, aren't you God? Answer, i got purposes under these ministry goals. Heart purposes, soul purposes, hope purposes, faith purposes. I'm not interested just in ministry goals. I'm interested in the hearts of the people that do ministry. If it happens in jail, I'll put them in jail. If i got to give them cancer, I'll give them cancer. It was Joe Hallett we're here. He's back in the hospital this morning with AIDS, you know. And if he were here, because I always watch Joe when I preach on things like this. He leans over like this, and he gives me strong nods whenever I talk like this. If Joe were here, he would say what he's written, that God has turned aids in his life and the ministry that he's engaged in and the affliction he's received from the gay community because he's turned against that lifestyle. He would say, it's all of God. God's blessed me. God's changed me. God's worked in me. You say, where's God? God's right there at Henry County Memorial Hospital, or whatever it's called. He's right there doing miracles in Joe Hallett's life. God is not efficient as we deem efficiency. There are so many broken plans in our lives, in our church. Why financial crisis? Well, he's got purposes. He's got purposes in it all. God is committed to increasing the hope and holiness of his people and he has ways of doing it in, under, through, and around our ministry goals that are so different that we dare not question his wisdom when we send a missionary to do this and they wind flat up on their back in the hospital or in jail or dead. God is God and he has purposes in it all. Now let's get more specific for just a few minutes. Back in verses 3 and 4. What are the effects of affliction? There are three mentioned here, and we need to understand this sequence. First, tribulations bring about perseverance, or patient endurance. And Paul doesn't mean this universally. Tribulations produce anger. Tribulations produce bitterness and resentment and rebellion. God knows that. Paul knows that. You know that. What he's saying here is, for those who have the Spirit of Christ, tribulations produce patient endurance. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Galatians 5.22 Do you have the Spirit of Christ who bore such afflictions? If the Spirit of Christ is in you, the ongoing effect of tribulations in your life will not be bitterness, anger, unforgiveness... We may struggle with those things and have to fight them, fight them, fight them. But that will not be the ongoing theme of our lives. If it is, it is doubtful that we have the Spirit of Christ. The point here in this first of the three members is that until hardship comes into our lives, especially hardship for the cause of Christ... We don't experience the depth and the extent of our devotion to Christ. We do not know our devotion to Christ until we experience hardship. You don't know, probably, for sure, that you're not a third soil believer until you get afflictions. Remember the third soil? In the parable of the soils, here's the third soil. Mark 4, 16. These are those sown upon the rocky ground who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root, no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. And then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They're gone. Well, I didn't know this Christianity stuff was going to bring trouble. Shoot. I didn't know everybody would reject me. I didn't know I might get phone threats at night for taking that stand publicly. I didn't know he might call me to go to a closed country and risk life and limb. (laughs) I'm out of here. Okay. But, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, then when tribulations come, it brings out of you the full measure of your devotion. And perseverance shows itself. Now, that leads to the second effect, namely, verse 4, and this perseverance brings about proven character. Literally, that word means the experience of being tested and found proven. passed the test. It is not hard to grasp the logic here between perseverance and a sense of a provenness. If tribulations come, and you persevere, and you come out on the other side of the tribulations, and you look back at yourself moving through there with all the struggles that you had, and you find yourself still believing, you can say, I'm real. I'm real. The tree was was bent and it didn't break. It didn't break. The wood of faith didn't break in my life. I looked down and before the afflictions, I saw this bar of gold called faith. Genuine beyond anything else in your life. And it had all kinds of brown stuff in it. it was hay and dirt and stuff. and And then it entered the fire. And for a year it was in the fire. Two years, three years, five years it was in the fire. And it came out on the other side and I looked down and it was so yellow. I'm real. I'm approved. I was tested. I'm not phony. I'm not a hypocrite after all. That's the logic here. Perseverance in affliction produces a sense of being tested and approved. And the third step follows, obviously. If you look down and you've made it through a a season of suffering in your life and you didn't cave in and you didn't shake your fist in God's face and you still cleave to Him and hold on to Him and you look down and you say, I'm real. You know what happens? You feel more hope than you've ever felt in your life. Because he stripped away. He stripped away all those other things that you were hoping and you didn't have them anymore. Remember that text in 2 Corinthians 1? Paul said, I do not want you to be ignorant of what we suffered in Asia for your sake. For we felt that we were so unbearably crushed that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. The whole point of having everything stripped away, every crutch knocked out, everything you'd hoped in, taken, is precisely so that you bank on one person, the God who raises the dead. Tribulation brings out perseverance in God's people. Perseverance through trial causes us to see that our goal is real. The tree doesn't break. The faith is there. He's in my life. Imperfect as all I was in that fight. I'm still with Him and I still hold on. And He's still holding on to me. And I now hope more in Him than I've ever hoped in Him in my life. That's the purpose of suffering in our lives. At Bethlehem, we have goals. We have a lot of goals. Urban discipling, small group shepherding, evangelizing networks, defending the unborn, mobilizing youth and children. We have a great missionary vision of sending 2,000 people by the year 2000. We've got a building to pay for. We have a budget that undergirds it all for Christ and His kingdom. You know what? I have no idea how much of this God wills to do. But I know something without any shadow of a doubt at all. That whatever obstacles we meet, whatever frustrations, whatever pain, whatever hostilities we encounter in the process of obeying God in the pursuit of these goals, in all of that, God has an unbreakable purpose. Namely, it may not be... At the planning level, it's going to be, for sure, at the heart level. His purpose is to bring us through those tribulations that we might be persevering, proven, and full of hope in the glory of God. And so my longing for you this morning, through all this word, is that you might hope in the glory of God. Verse 2, and that moving through the tribulations the perseverance, the provenness, you might come out and hope not only in the glory of God, but in those tribulations too. That you might exult in the glory of God and exult in tribulations. That you might so trust God and read God's purpose on your life that even if you have 10,000 plans and you land flat on your back, in prison or in the hospital or under the opprobrium of the whole world, you will not shake your fist in God's face and say, what's become of all my godly plans? But you will hear him say, I have a godly purpose for you and it's a soul work that in my eyes is so much more important than you were up to. Don't complain. Receive the blessing of my hand. I'm going to make you gold. Prayer teams are going to be right here after the service, and some of you are in the middle of the fire right now. And uh, I believe God wants to touch you and take the truth of the morning and the prayer of the prayer teams and make you strong. So if you are, take a few minutes after the service and let them pray the truth and the spirit of this message into your life. Let's pray. Lord, it is scary. Without any presumption of self-reliance, without any presuming that we in ourselves could ever stand up under the awful things that Paul endured, nevertheless, we prepare ourselves, Father, for whatever's coming in America, and especially in the great cause of finishing the Great Commission by reaching the unreached peoples of the world, closed or no closed countries. We dedicate ourselves afresh right now, body, soul, and spirit, at any cost, to obey your
0: call. In Jesus' name, amen.